It is good to see you all this morning. Let's open with a word of prayer here. Heavenly Father, as we come to hear your word, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be present and give us insights and cause us to hear what you would have us hear. That you would be glorified in this time. That what you have done in your son Jesus will be manifest. And that we will respond with thankful hearts. In the name of Jesus, amen. Our text this morning comes from Acts chapter 18. We're picking up where we left off last week. And we're starting in verse 24. And we're going to go through 19 verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus." And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what were you then baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And they entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them, and and he entered about the kingdom of God, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus, which this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of God, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. This is the word of the Lord. Some of my favorite uh, stories in the New Testament are those when Christ causes the blind to see. I mean, can you even imagine what that was like for those who were blind? Suddenly, bam, they can see. Now, I've known some people who are blind, 
Some liked life, and it was not a day-to-day misery for them. But for others, it was hard. Regardless, though, imagine any of them getting their sight. What a day that would be. Or one of my favorite videos on YouTube is this of this baby, deaf from birth, that knew he was loved by his mom and got plenty of cuddling and felt safe in his mom's arms. Then after a medical procedure with his ears, the baby hears his mother's voice for the first time. The loving and the cuddling and the safety is the same, but holy smokes, when he hears his mom's voice, the situation is made whole and complete, and the child and the mother and the viewers, including me, and the nurses are just sobbing with joy. Our text today has some parallels with a blind person seeing or a baby hearing its mother's voice for the first time. But today we will see people getting much more than sight or hearing. These people who were already energized due to the message of repentance preached by John the Baptist and due to this anticipation of the Messiah suddenly got something that was inconceivable. Suddenly, they understood grace. They understood the grace of God that frees you. They understood what Christ had done, and everything was different and beyond better. They got the rest of the story, and they understood that they were forgiven, and they were given new hope and life in a way that simply could not have been imagined prior to that. Then suddenly, they, they suddenly had a, a present and a future that involved being drawn into the very presence of the eternal, loving God with the Holy Spirit living in them and manifesting his wonders. And it changed everything. Not just for them, but for those around them. As a reminder, um, we are using the Church of Ephesus and its history and the interactions that are recorded with it as the roadmap for this sermon series with the hope that we can learn from those brothers and sisters in Ephesus. Two Sundays ago, we went over briefly, um, very briefly, their history and then, then focused on the end of that biblical account of them, which is Christ's letter to them in the Revelation, where he indicted them for forgetting their first love, for forgetting him. This challenged us to never let that happen to us. Last week, we looked at in more depth what happened at the time when the church was just planted in Ephesus. We saw that God does amazing things if we remain faithful, even when things happen that are not on our agenda. That we saw that we might need to cut our hair. What I mean by that is we might need to be willing to subordinate our rights and even be willing to do things that we know are unnecessary and, and meaningless if we want to be able to effectively proclaim the gospel and reach those people that God has set us in the midst of. We saw last week that God can do mighty things and and use us in ways that we simply can't imagine, even if we feel and we are unprepared. 
if we remain faithful and do what we got with what we do what we can with what we got. And we also saw that we need to stay on track and we need to be led by the Lord rather than by circumstances, whether good circumstances or bad circumstances, and, and be led by the Lord and let him direct our decisions. Today, we start with the story of Apollos that you just heard read. As you recall, um, Paul and had left Priscilla and Aquila to deal with this new work in Ephesus, which apparently included uh, reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue and gathering with believers, probably in the home of Aquila and Priscilla. Based on That's based on, there's a reference to believers in verse 27. There's also a reference in the the, the, Paul's letter to the Corinthians about the church in Aquila and Priscilla's home. And there's also the fact that the synagogue was, was not the core gathering place of the early church. Those with Jewish background likely still gathered in the synagogue on Saturday, where the Gentiles wouldn't have, but on Saturday where they would, at least until they were kicked out, they would uh, reason with other Jews about Jesus, trying to get them to understand the rest of the story. But the church, which increasingly was composed of Gentiles, would meet on Resurrection Day, Sunday, and most frequently in someone's home, which probably is what's happening in our story with Aquila and Priscilla. They were at the synagogue when Apollo shows up, goes to the synagogue, and begins to speak about the baptism of repentance and of the coming Messiah, the one John the Baptist said was coming. And Apollos was a good student of the scriptures. Our text says he was speaking about all the prophecies in the scriptures about Jesus, who Apollos apparently did not know had already come and died and rose again, which, while it might seem a tad strange, is entirely possible. The text tells us that Apollos was from Alexandria in Egypt. And while Alexandria would become a very, very important center for Christianity over the next few centuries, At this point, only 20 years after Christ's resurrection, it wasn't. Some think that John Mark started the church in Alexandria around 49 AD. The story we're looking at is only about three years after that. And we have no idea how long Apollos had been gone from Alexandria or if the gospel had even started to spread there. I mean, it wasn't like there was an internet where everybody knew everything immediately. However... Apollos had heard about John the Baptist and the baptism of repentance. And even if Apollos had heard the rumors of Jesus, he just didn't get it. That the one that John proclaimed and foretold about, and the one that the scriptures he knew so well foretold about and spoke about, had actually come and actually lived and died for our sins and rose again and was seated at the right hand of God from where he'll come again to judge the living and the dead. He didn't know that. He didn't know that Jesus had already sent the Holy Spirit as our comfort and our guide and our source of life. Apollos didn't have the rest of the story. And so Aquila and Priscilla took him aside and told him. Now, Can you imagine Apollos' excitement? I mean, his mind was being blown by what he heard. He he was already energetic. He was already all in. And he's going, what? He came? He died? 
He rose again. He sent the Holy Spirit. Really? Remember, Apollos knew the Scriptures. This meant he also knew that his repentance mattered because the Scriptures say it matters. But what he couldn't have known was that he could be completely forgiven. You are saying that God himself paid the price for my sins with his own blood? You're saying I can be completely forgiven? And he rose and defeated death? And in that one that John the Baptist said was going to come, in him and and through his spirit I can now be in union with God the Creator, my Heavenly Father, who will sanctify me and glorify me with the very glory of his Son? The one I've been waiting for? You're telling me that? My guess it was a pretty good day for Apollos. Then, after getting the rest of the story with his newly invigorated preaching, my hunch is there was a bit of a change, Apollos continued his debates in public with the Jews, again, most likely in the synagogue, showing them by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. This leads to a second observation from the story. And that is that all this evangelistic preaching and apologetics before and after Apollos got the rest of the story was without the book of Romans or the gospel of John or the Romans road or a four spiritual laws track or Josh McDowell or C.S. Lewis's arguments. All of this preaching was from the Old Testament. Even the parts that our text says that he was accurately teaching concerning Jesus. All Apollos and all, all believers, for that matter, had to this point, since the New Testament was nowhere close to being compiled, was the Old Testament. Maybe by this time, Paul's letters to the Thessalonians had been done. Maybe Galatians, maybe the book of Jude. But the church in Ephesus didn't have these. They had no Gospels, no Romans, and all they had was the Old Testament. When the Bible references the Scriptures, such as when Paul does in 2 Timothy, when he says that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, we all know that verse. What the writers are referencing is the Old Testament. Later in his second epistle, Peter annotates that all scriptures to include Paul's letter. And it's a great quote from 2 Peter 3.16. But at this point, what the evangelist Paul, Apollos, Priscilla, Aquila were using was the Old Testament. And I want us to be more familiar with the Old Testament. Beginning the last Sunday in April, April 30th, um, we're going to start something new. After the benediction and a short break, those who want to will reconvene right here um, for a time of question and answers on the sermon and anything else that transpires during the service. And here's the connected part. For, um, for a discussion on a section of the Old Testament that will be assigned or suggested in the prior week's bulletin. And it will be a larger section, might be a whole book, might be 12 chapters, 
and you'll be encouraged to read it multiple times during the week. The point of the reading will be macro, to get the story, not micro, and to become more familiar with the whole story that's told in the scripture. As familiar as we are, for instance, with stories like The Princess Bride or The Chronicles of Narnia or Lord of the Rings, where you can just parachute right into that story no matter where you are. We should be able to do that with the scriptures. Now let's turn to the story about the 12 men that Paul encountered on his return to Ephesus for the second visit. I'm going to read chapter 19, verses 1 to 7. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the island country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. One of the things that covering larger sections of Scripture in a sermon, as we are doing in today's message, is that the preacher is allowed to avoid certain subjects. This text has one of those subjects. Uh, another advantage of covering large sections of Scripture at a, at a time like we are this morning is that the preacher should be forced or is forced to, to focus on the primary point of a text, not the tangents that have led to so many divisions in the church. The subject I'm referencing from this passage is tongues, which is absolutely not the point of this text, though it's clearly mentioned here. The issue is the difference between a baptism of repentance as taught by John the Baptist and then by people like Apollos before he got the rest of the story and a baptism in the name of Jesus. These 12 men who may or may not have been evangelized by Apollos, which isn't clear, and we don't even know if they were Jews or Gentiles, had the heart, had the, the disposition to follow Jesus, but just like Apollos, had not heard the rest of the story, which is the point of the text. John the Baptist spoke of repentance and of a coming Messiah. He did not know about the cross of Jesus or the resurrection or that our salvation is brought about and bought and secured entirely by Jesus. In fact, even Jesus' own disciples didn't fully get that until after the resurrection. John the Apostle, not John the Baptist, but John the Apostle who, who, who recorded Jesus' words that we know so well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life, did not fully understand those words when he first heard them out of the very mouth of Jesus. It was only after Jesus' death and resurrection that he really understood. John the Baptist 
knew something great was coming, and he said so. And he pointed to a coming Messiah. He, John the Baptist, said he baptized with water, but that he who was coming after him, Jesus, would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Even though he, John the Baptist, couldn't have fully comprehended what he was saying. Our story is a fulfillment of that prophecy. These 12 men who are called disciples, which may be an inclusive reference to their eventual position as Christian disciples, or it may be reference to them as disciples of John the Baptist, or it may mean something else, commentators are all over it, um, clearly had the concept of John's baptism of repentance. But they had no clue about Christ or his sending the Holy Spirit or the full gospel truth. These men understood repentance. That's what John's preaching was all about. They repented, probably a lot. And they understood that their sins were serious and that they were fully worthy of the judgment of the holy and all-powerful God. And they repented. And they said they were sorry. And they were. And they probably even asked for forgiveness. But in their hearts, they had to still be asking, how is that possible? How could we be forgiven of our sins? Bear in mind that, that true repentance is not looking for a way out. True repentance is not hope. True repentance is not an assurance of pardon. True repentance is a wholehearted acknowledging the awfulness of one's behavior, being willing to accept the serious consequences of those sins and behaviors, and making a decision to turn from those awful things. Repentance is not about freedom from sin, or freedom from judgment, and it's not even about forgiveness. It's about confessing sin. That's what these guys knew, and submitting oneself to the judge who rightly could and should condemn them. And they also anticipated a Messiah who might. That is what these 12 men had accepted and believed. Now imagine the joy when Paul told them about Christ completely paying the price for their forgiveness and cleansing. Remember, they had truly repented. They acknowledged the seriousness of their sin. And Paul told them about the forgiveness and cleansing and the way of grace and forgiveness. Imagine their response when Paul told them the rest of the story about Jesus and his death and resurrection and ascension and forgiveness and the sending of the Holy Spirit and sanctification and eternal life. And then their faithful reception of that message. And then they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And consistent with the prophecy of John the Baptist and the promise of Jesus himself, they received the Holy Spirit. And it was too much. Imagine the baby hearing its first voice, hearing the mother's voice for the first time, or someone seeing for the first time. That is only a taste. They could not contain themselves. When they understood that the one who they had been hoping would come, whom John said would come, whom they repented because he was coming, had actually come, 
and what he did? And were baptized in the name of Jesus and received the Holy Spirit? Things begin to happen. And one of the things, one of the things that the scripture clearly says happened was that they began to speak in tongues and prophesy. But speaking in tongues was not the point. Now speaking in tongues. You thought I was going to avoid the subject. I'm not. (laughs) But I'm also not going to let it become the point. Most of you probably know that there are believers all over the map on this. Believers of good faith and good conscience. Were they tongues merely human tongues or human languages? Were they ecstatic languages? Was this a manifestation of the gift of tongues talked about in Corinthians? Was this the, did they start speaking in the actual language of heaven since angels probably don't talk in English or Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek or Latin? Candidly, I have an opinion on that. But like I said, it's not the point. I do believe it to be certain nonetheless that those that insist that speaking in tongues, based on this scripture and a few other, that speaking in tongues is somehow tied to one's salvation or sanctification or being filled with the Spirit, I believe that they have not correctly understood the teaching of scriptures. But that's not the point of the text. We need to understand that there are times when certain details really are not that important, though they are present and obvious. Let me give an example. When I was working through college, I was working in a lumber mill. And one of the tasks I would sometimes get would be sweeping up and cleaning. And there was this conveyor belt that ran right through the plant. And over the player belt was a, a, a big old slab of steel that had a little rail on it that you'd walk over the conveyor belt. So I'm cleaning and doing my thing. And the next thing I know, I am in that conveyor belt that metal plate is on me, and I am going up the conveyor belt to a hole that's about this big that is literally going to rip me in half. You can scream as loud as you want in a lumber mill, but nobody can hear you. I knew my situation. I was crying for help, but I was destined to die. I was going to die. The next thing that I knew... I'm standing next to that conveyor belt with my hands on my knees, just sighing, just just not, well, sighing was not the point. I stood there, hands on my knees, sighing and catching my breath at what had just happened. But my sighing in relief is not the point of that story. Though it's very evident, and it was the most dominant thing right there at that time. The point was that God had saved me. There's, there's no other explanation. And, and I was thankful. The point is that these 12 men had only been baptized with a baptism of repentance, which left them still under the law, which left them facing a judgment that they knew was coming. Out of their true repentance, they understood their judgment and condemnation was just and deserved. They were still, as Paul says in a not yet written letter to this church, Ephesians, 
They were still dead in their sins. They had repented, sure. They knew their sin deserved judgment. They had decided to change their ways, but they were stuck in a conveyor belt of judgment. And then they got the rest of the gospel. They understood grace. They knew they were forgiven. And they were baptized in the name of Jesus. And bam, they are out of the conveyor belt of death. And they are alive. And they had the presence of God in them. It was wonderful. They had been delivered from death forever. For these disciples, the issue was that they had finally understood the gospel, received the Holy Spirit, and were changed. And they could not contain themselves, speaking boldly and with power. Tongues was not the point. Any more than my sighing after God had rescued me was the point. What God had done was the point. Which brings us to the next section, which, where we encounter what this on-fire church began to experience for the next two years. I'm going to pick up in verse uh, 9, uh, verse 8. And he entered the synagogue, Paul, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of God, hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. As was Paul's norm, on his second visit, Paul went to the Jews, which meant to the synagogue. And he would continue to go there until they would give him the boot, or he'd leave due to their obstinacy. Three months in, after a short revival, which we just read about, Paul tosses the towel in on these stubborn people in the synagogue who refused to believe, but even worse, spoke evil of the way, which was what Christianity was called at that point. So what did Paul do? He used their rejection, their obstinacy, as an impetus to go to another environment, a place which was basically a public lecture hall where he could proclaim the gospel to Jews and Greeks with more freedom. And it, as it turned out, with more frequency, since he was now doing it daily. What the enemy wanted to use to shut Paul down turned into a much broader broadcasting than if he had continued in the synagogue on the Sabbath with a bunch of people who were refusing to believe. At a minimum, what Paul is doing is a good example of following Christ's directive to not throw pearls to swine. At a certain point, it becomes fruitless and worthless to keep trying to convince stubborn people who speak evil of Christ and his followers. And God blessed Paul's decision. And many heard, many who might not have heard otherwise. And God even did the extraordinary miracles we just read about, which also are not the point, even though people will want to make them the point. The fact is that God provided signs and wonders 
as the full and true gospel was proclaimed and souls were saved. And please note, Paul wasn't making an issue of these miracles. He wasn't selling tickets. He wasn't offering trainings on how to do miracles. Signs and wonders were happening as Paul was faithfully proclaiming the gospel. In verse 11, Luke, who is the writer of Acts, who probably got this whole narrative from Paul, simply says that God was doing extraordinary miracles. It was God doing them, not Paul. And Paul did not parlay these miracles into a big old honking church or a TV show or make a gazillion dollars selling books because miracles are not the point. The point of our text this morning is this. These folks in Ephesus, Apollos, the followers, the 12 followers of John the Baptist, this entire community of believers had finally grasped the breadth and the complete gospel of Jesus Christ. That he was the one whom the scriptures had said would come, and he did come. That he did live and die for our sins. That he did rise from the grave as he said he would and as the scriptures said he would. And he ascended on high and and he has sent his Holy Spirit to live in those who have faith in him. That's the point of this text. And once these folks grasped that, and as Paul continued to preach that, God did amazing things. And greater than any miracle or healing or tongue is the fact that those who understand that they must repent, they must, we must repent. John, was not, John the Baptist was not wrong. Those that understand that they must repent, when they get the rest of the story and put their faith in Jesus and believe the gospel, they are born again. No longer dead to their sin, no lo- dead in their sins, no longer going to spend eternity in hell, but instead are enabled by the Holy Spirit to be brought into a union with the perfect and loving and eternal God forever. That's great news. That is wonderful. That's a reason to celebrate, and it's much greater than seeing for the first time or hearing a mother's voice for the first time or getting out of a conveyor belt. Repentance may be a starting point, and signs and wonders may happen, but what God has done in Christ Jesus is the point of the story. I hope that we can learn from these brothers and sisters in Ephesus. I hope that we can embrace and grasp and consume and focus on the rest of the story and what God has done in Christ Jesus. And then watch and see what God does. Let's pray. How can we but thank you? For we know our sin. And we confess it. But you have made known forgiveness and life and hope in and through your son, Jesus. And we thank you for that. 
Help us to stay focused on you. Not on anything else, but you. And use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.